Are you a man looking for an intensive program to help you overcome sexually addictive behaviors? Gateway to Freedom is your answer. Gateway to Freedom is a three-day workshop for men seeking to overcome any destructive sexual habits. Whether married, single, or divorced, Gateway to Freedom will help men regain hope for a new life of purity and real contentment. The workshop is conducted by experts in the field of sexual addiction recovery with decades of combined experience. Read testimonials of workshop alumni at gatewaymen.com. Get all the info and register online at gatewaymen.com or call 1-800-49-PURITY. Hi, my name is Jonathan. I'm the founder of the Gateway to Freedom Workshop. I want to personally invite you to register for our next workshop coming up December 1st through the 3rd in Texas in the lovely Hill Country. So call us today at 1-800-49-PURITY. That's 1-800-497-8748 or visit gatewaymen.com. You're listening to Pure Sex Radio, training men, educating women. Brought to you by Be Broken Ministries. Visit us on the web at puresexradio.com. Good day, radio listeners. Welcome to this edition of the Pure Sex Radio broadcast. We're glad to have you here with us. My name is Jonathan, and we have a really special guest with us on the line. We've got Troy Haas all the way from the great state of Georgia. So, Troy, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks. Good to be here. And I say great state of Georgia, even though I know that all of my, you know, because I live in Texas, my wife would be freaking out right now, but I was born in Georgia. So there's, you know, I've got a, I've got some deep connections there even though i was only there for probably like 18 months of my life but that's where it all started for me well i tell you georgia is a beautiful beautiful place but i'm from texas and so i'd have to agree with your wife yeah well and that's just it there is definitely a uh a much uh, higher i don't know pride state pride going on uh (laughs) than than you know one of the hardest things I ever did in my life was to give up my Texas driver's license in order to get a Georgia driver's license. It felt like I was losing something or giving something up. Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, we're glad to have you on the program. Um, I would love to just dive in, and and I'd love for you to just sort of introduce yourself to our, our listeners and our viewers and just kind of let them know uh, your story. We'd love to be able to hear kind of where you came from. How did you get involved in this kind of ministry? Um, and just let's go from there. Absolutely. You know, it's this particular area of ministry, purity ministry is not something I think any of us aspire to. We don't, in our early days of feeling called to ministry, hope that one day we'll be able to uh, have this particular story. But I am so incredibly grateful to God uh, for the grace that he's shown me and how that's kind of played itself out in my life and in my story. Um, as I said, I'm from Texas. And so, um, I, I grew up in Houston and I would call my home that I grew up in a very good home. I had great parents, but it wasn't a God centered home. So there, there was no, uh, no role that really God played in our lives much. I had no idea who Jesus really was and that he created me for a relationship with him. Um, and so as I grew up uh, in this good home with great parents, I experienced some things as a kid that uh, really impacted me greatly. And I, I walked away from my childhood in many senses with a deep sense of confusion, mm. a deep sense of shame, 
and a deep sense of aloneness. And I didn't know what to do with that. And uh, most of that, I just kept secret and internalized it. And so get to middle school and I discovered the wonderful world of uh, escaping through drugs and escaping through sex. And so my middle school and high school years were just given full heartedly, if I could say it that way, uh, to escaping through drugs and sex. But the problem in turning to that to cope with my shame and to cope with this sense of defectiveness that I felt, um, uh, there were some life impacting pieces of that. And ultimately, um, I ended up having legal consequences because of my drug use and the things that I was doing and how far things got out of hand. Mm. So uh, in the midst of all of that, I find myself a, a guest of the state of Texas uh, in uh, downtown Houston and Harris County Jail as things are kind of unfolding legally and it's not looking good. But a year prior, as a student, as a freshman at Texas A&M University, um, I heard the gospel for the first time. I heard that Jesus loved me, that he had a plan for my life, that he wanted to have a relationship with me and that he could change my life. And I thought the guy that was talking to me was smooth nuts. But there was a seed planted there that now December 1986, I'm in jail. Things are kind of just falling apart around me. And God begins to speak to me. And long story short, December 10th, 1986, I became a follower of Christ. I began a relationship with Christ. I experienced the forgiveness that comes with that relationship. And it really was life transforming. It really mm -hmm. was deeply impactful in my life. So I, I'm, I've got all the time in the world because uh, I'm locked up. So I'm just voraciously reading my Bible. I never really had a Bible before. I never uh, had read the Bible much. And so I'm growing in my relationship with God. And uh, long story short, cool story for another day. Uh, but uh, in the middle of 2017, I walked out of there uh, not having to go to prison and very grateful to God for that. Uh, and I get plugged into a local church. And uh, very soon I feel, um, I feel called to ministry. Uh, I'm growing as a follower of Christ. I mean, God's really at work in my life. Um, I went away to college at a small school called East Texas Baptist University uh, in Marshall, Texas, and things really were different. God really was at work, and I really was growing. But Jonathan, what happened was I, I, I slowly began to realize that um, there were some things that I had kind of missed in my early Christian life. And, and two of those things I would say, number one, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, 17, that we are a new creation in Christ. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. And what I thought that meant was all that junk that happened to me as a kid and all those things that I experienced, that deep sense of confusion and aloneness and shame, none of that mattered mm. because that was the past. And now I'm with Jesus and it's all good. But I also missed the story of Lazarus, where when Lazarus comes out of the grave, he's fully alive, but the vestiges of his death are still being drug along behind him. And it took the body of Christ to kind of gather around Lazarus, and Lazarus had to allow them to take off those grave clothes. Mm -hmm. And what I had done instead is I just kind of covered those grave clothes up, assumed that they didn't matter, assumed that they would just go away. So I looked good on the outside. But on the inside, I was still struggling. And in particular, Jonathan, I found I was struggling with what ultimately I realized was my true drug of choice, which was sex. I'm a young man. 
I know it's wrong to look at pornography. I know it's wrong to, 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 you know, have girlfriend relationships that become sexual. And I'm trying to battle through this as a young Christian, but I I don't know what to do with it. And the one thing I never did was talk to someone else about it. Mm -hmm. I struggled in secret. I struggled alone. So I always thought that something would happen that would kind of set me free. I assumed, you know, when I meet the right girl sure, yeah, uh, and I get married, this will all go away. Because, you know, at that point, sex is legal. It's awesome. You can have it all you want. And I thought sex was the problem. I didn't realize sex really wasn't the problem. I was just using sex to cope with what really was the real problem. Um, But I did. I met this amazing woman there. Her name was Melissa. She was the most beautiful, godly woman I'd ever met. And I really felt like if I could be with her, all my problems would go away in terms of my struggles with sexual sin. So we get married and I'm still struggling and I'm baffled and I'm in seminary now and I'm working at a church. I'm a pastor at a church and I'm thinking to myself, what's going on? Why am I still struggling? I'm supposed to be all better now. I'm supposed to not be struggling. And so what happens is um, I just continue to try to overcome this, but all by myself, all alone never bringing anyone else in. And I thought to myself, when I graduate from seminary and I become an ordained minister and I go to the mission field, surely all this will go away because missionaries don't struggle. Oh, of course. So, yeah, we know that, right? <laughs> exactly. I just, I, you know, there's no way missionaries struggle with these sort of things. So I finished my seminary degree. I'm ordained as a minister. Uh, Melissa and I are appointed as career missionaries to East Africa and we head off to Africa to win the world uh, to Christ. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, that stuff didn't go away because it doesn't just go away. It doesn't just um, missionaries struggle. People struggle. Everyone struggles. And men in particular um, struggle with purity. And the one thing I never did in all of this was to bring anyone else into that struggle. I never told anyone else what was going on. So very quickly, Jonathan, in the midst of an amazing ministry and in the midst of God doing incredible things in East Africa, um, my secret life began to kind of spiral out of control. And I I had learned from an early age to kind of compartmentalize things. And so I had this compartment over here. And in this compartment, I was a missionary. I loved God. I had a genuine relationship with him. I loved my wife. I was being used by God. We were seeing God do incredible things. But in this compartment over here, I was continuing to cope like I'd always coped as long as I can remember using sex and sexuality and, and those things in a compulsive fashion to try to cope with the, the, the shame that I felt, the heavy emotions that I felt, the challenges uh, that, that I would come up against in life. Mm-hmm. Well, you remember I told you uh, early on in my story, I always assumed that something would happen that would set me free. Well, that something happened in 1999. It wasn't what I expected. But what happened in 1999 is God, in his grace, pushed me out into the light. Because I had tried everything. I had fasted. I had prayed. I had memorized, I had memorized chapters of Scripture. Forget verses. I had read every book I could get my hands on, but nothing was changing. But when God pushed me out of the light, you know, the Bible promises us, that eventually everything will be exposed. And as much as I hated what I was doing, I would beg God to take it away. I I hated what I was doing. God knew I needed the light. And so 
my sin was um, uncovered. It was exposed, and it was incredibly painful, more so for my wife than for me. Um, our dreams of being missionaries were crushed. Uh, I knew my, my, my missions career and my ministry career were over, and I find myself in California alone in a treatment center thinking, I don't know how this is going to happen. So, well, go, so, go ahead. Okay, so I, I don't mean to cut you off there, but yeah. be, before we get to the next chapter, because I feel like, you know, things are about to take a turn, right? Things are yeah. about to go into a new direction. Absolutely. I, I want to camp out a little bit on all that kind of led up to those kinds of things, because there's a whole lot. I mean, obviously, there's a ton to unpack there. Yes. Um, but I'm I'm really curious to know, especially in those junior high and high school years, when you said, listen, you didn't have the 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 you know spiritual paradigm yeah. at home of a christian family so but but we also know that every single human being on planet earth that is made in the image of god yeah. contains within themselves a sense of conscience even if it's yeah. seared or broken or whatever else so i'm wondering where and how did there what kind of moral fabric was there in your home? And at what point were there certain things that you were getting involved in? Recognizing, listen, your spirit was dark at this point in your right. life because you were not in Christ. Um, but what was the process for you as you're getting involved with drugs and, and sex and these kinds of things? How was that sifting through your your even unregenerate moral paradigm? Right. Yeah, the way I would the way I would answer that is is just to say this: I, I was more than anything alone in all of this. Mm. Um, I felt uniquely defective. I felt like I didn't measure up, and so even at that point in my life, I focused on externals. And so I was good in sports. Uh, I, I did well academically early on in school. Um, I, I I tried to project this. Uh, um, uh, external uh, image. But then by the time I got to high school, I had kind of given up on that. Um, I was so lost in that world uh, that to be honest, Jonathan, looking back, I can see God's hand protecting me. I can see God's hand um, uh, helping me not go too far down this road or, mm -hmm. or you know, I ought to be dead or in prison. Uh, but in terms of consciously being aware of any of that, I, I was so just lost uh, and so um, so consumed with coping and what that kind of numbed and did in my life that, that I don't recall anything uh, other than just living to get high, living to have sex, and uh, living to numb these painful feelings I was feeling. Yeah. So then when you, when you had your, your stint in jail— uh, and said, you know, that's when you came to this understanding of the gospel and trusted in Christ. What kind of—I'm um, curious of how you responded emotionally to that conversion. And the reason I'm specifically asking that is because um, I think sometimes we can very quickly— because we want to disciple a new Christian. We want a new Christian to get the right information. We want them to have the correct doctrine in terms of, yeah. do you really understand the gospel? Do you understand its implications? All these kinds of things that 
we can we can race off into an intellectual pursuit and forget that everything you just mentioned about pre-conversion was residing in your heart. Yeah. This emotional brokenness and and not yeah. only in you know, all that kind of stuff. So I'm curious to know what the what your emotional response was, and not to say that you know a light bulb just immediately goes on. But there is a process, I think, yeah, in which absolutely. our hearts begin to change. And I'm curious to just kind of know what was that journey like for you emotionally? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I remember feeling uh, leading up to that conversion experience in December of 86, I remember feeling increasingly hopeless and uh, increasingly uh, just um, as if my, my lot in life was just going to be bad. And uh, I was finally getting what I deserved. You know, I was a bad person on the inside, and now I was getting the just rewards of that. Yeah. And so there was a lot of hopelessness and despair uh, and aloneness. But as God began to speak to me, he put folks in my life, and folks began to read the Bible to me, and folks began to talk to me, and I began to read books. And those seeds that were planted at, at Texas A&M uh, a year plus earlier began to germinate. And I remember waking up, Jonathan, on December 10th, 86, and I felt I felt scared, but I also felt I felt drawn and I felt drawn to Christ. And basically what I felt emotionally was. I have an opportunity and that opportunity is to come forward and to trust and to rest and to be welcomed. And so though there was fear there, uh, there was this deep sense of you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm actually loved and someone wants to be with me uh, and that someone was God. And so I remember, I'll just tell you this story. This is a great example. Just, a, just very shortly after I was converted, I found myself in a service where they were doing, we were singing uh, Christmas songs, but we also sang that night Amazing Grace. And I don't mm-hmm. ever remember having sung Amazing Grace before in my life. So I'm, I'm learning the words as I'm singing the song for the first time. And I begin to weep. Because, Jonathan, I felt overwhelmed with love and peace and acceptance, unlike I had ever felt before. Because in my life, I'd always felt uh, less than, defective, ashamed. Um, And for the first time, I felt free. I felt alive. I felt loved. And there was this great sense of hope that had replaced that hopelessness. But then, uh, to, to kind of follow along, I was so hungry for the word of God. See, I'm, I'm not in a church at this point. You know, I'm not, I'm no one's uh, leading me to have, <laughs> I didn't pray the sinner's prayer. I didn't walk an aisle. It was just me and God in this jail cell mm-hmm. and me being drawn to him and me realizing I could give my life to him and trust him. But then when I get out of jail, I want to go to church. I'd never been to church before. And you're exactly right, Jonathan. It became very quick that all that joy and that hope quickly got covered up with this sense of, okay, here's some stuff you need to know. Here's some stuff you need to do. And I was eager to please God and I was eager to please others. And instead of learning that pleasing God is more of, um, you know, how I connect with him and relate to him and give my emotions to him and, and, and such, I learned that to please God, there were, there were things I needed to do and things I needed to say and a way I needed to look. And so it completely disconnected very early on for me, mm-hmm. the joy that I had felt and the hope that I had felt in my conversion in jail and my experience as a new Christian. 
And I'm also curious too because we've we've got a lot of uh, listeners who um, you know their experience their their context right now is they're married. You know, vast majority of the people that listen to our program yep. are, are married. And so as you th- as you talk about entering into marriage, and there's all these kinds of expectations yep. in terms of hey, what's that gonna what you know uh, re- relief and sense of freedom is that going to provide for all the baggage that I'm bringing in? And and there's many many. Yeah. categories of baggage. I think I think wives have the same kinds of expectations of whatever their histories have been and there's all these expectations that marriage itself is going to solve. Again, kind of staying on the emotional track, what was your emotional response to all these disappointments that are naturally going to occur in marriage when, guess what, it didn't solve my lust issue, it didn't solve all these other kinds of problems? Great question and, and I'd answer that in this way. Um, I felt increasingly uh, abandoned. I felt increasingly disappointed. I felt increasingly disillusioned. And ultimately that played itself out, especially in my marriage, with an increasing expression of anger. Mm. I was angry. I was angry at God for not doing the things I expected him to do in my life at this point. I was angry at Melissa because she was supposed to save me. She was supposed to fill up all this emptiness that was in me. And she was supposed to be you know, the perfect wife. And when I realized she wasn't the perfect life wife, because the perfect wife doesn't exist, I felt very disappointed and I felt very sad. And then because I don't, you know, guys don't, don't do sad. Guys don't do disappointed. Guys do angry. Right. And so what Melissa experienced from me often the first 10 years of our marriage was anger um, because I was internally very frustrated and very disappointed and very sad that the expectations that I had for our marriage and what that was going to do in my heart were not being realized. Mm-hmm. Now, then when you guys go overseas, you're doing mission work. I mean, it can be, it's so easy for those who become uh, zealous for the work of the Lord, yeah. for everybody to just kind of pass by and go, hey, these are, these people got it together, everything's going well. What was the communication like in your marriage as you're kind of spiraling more into this double life? Um, you know, what, if anything, was shared about what was in the dark? Did, was any of this coming out to your wife at all? What was coming, the only thing that was coming out, Jonathan, was was anger and frustration on my part. That's all she visibly saw. That's all she experienced. And And, and I didn't tell her why I was feeling that. You know, I had this deep sense of self-hatred. I hated what I was doing. I wanted to stop it, um, but I couldn't find any traction or any freedom. So I got increasingly angry, increasingly afraid, uh, and that anger would get expressed to her. So from time to time, other people would step into our lives and say, Troy, what's going on in your marriage? You are always so angry with Melissa, and I was treating her in a very unkind, unchristian way. Uh, and I never took those opportunities. I would, I would recognize, yes, I I am angry. And what everyone didn't know is I was 10,000 times more angry with myself than I was with Melissa. But because I kept that secret, all folks could see and all Melissa could experience was, uh, my anger and my frustration. And so that just caused her to feel more alone, more defective, more inadequate, uh, and our relationship continually grew apart. Yeah. Now, obviously, the only thing the only thing we had in common was ministry. Yeah. 
Now, obviously, this all came into the light because you said you ended up in a treatment facility yep. in California. So yep. walk us through what that was like for you and then ultimately what that was like for your marriage. Yeah. So, you know, I end up in this treatment center and I feel incredibly alone. I feel incredibly hopeless. I'm thinking I'm thinking what my options are. I can I can try to take my own life because I don't want to face all this. I can run away and, you know, disappear to Canada or something. Uh, I just felt so incredibly ashamed and so incredibly alone. And my phone rang. I was there alone because Melissa couldn't join me. She was eight and a half months pregnant. So she was back in Africa having to give birth to our second son without me, having to pack up all of our things without me, having to say goodbyes without me. It was very painful and very difficult for her. But I'm feeling just completely alone here. And my phone rings. And it's a pastor friend of mine who I look up to, a mentor of mine. And he calls me up and he just simply, no one knew where I was. And he just said this to me. He said, Troy, it's me, brother Jimmy. I just heard what happened to you. And I want you to know I love you and I'm here for you. Please let me know if I can do anything. And Jonathan, what I experienced at that moment was not my mentor friend, uh, brother Jimmy, calling me. What I experienced was God saying, Troy, I haven't forgotten you. I've not abandoned you. Mm. Yes, you have sinned. Yes, you have failed. But that's not what defines you. You are my child, and I'm going to walk with you through this. That was a turning point for me, Jonathan, to be able to say, you know what? Okay, I've got to face this. And it was then that I had the courage to begin to be honest. So I began to be honest first with my therapist, and then as soon as possible, completely honest with my wife. Mm. Uh, and those steps of finally, for the first time ever, talking about things, not just that I had done since I'd been married in terms of sexual sin and, and adultery and all those sort of things, but stuff that I had done and done to me as a child, just getting all of those secrets out and all of that, all of those grave clothes kind of exposing them. And that was, that was the, 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 the first step in what mm -hmm. has become this lifelong process that I call restoration. Now, uh, one of the most common questions we get from men, you know, you talked about getting completely honest with your wife, is guys are always wanting to know something. Wives are also wanting to know, hey, listen, what is, where do you stand on full disclosure? Yeah. What does getting completely honest with your wife look like to you? And then how do you also maybe, what would you say to the men out there that are thinking, man, Absolutely. I got a lot of things that I don't know if I'm going to want to share, <laughs> them, you know? You know, great question. I believe my mantra is this, secrecy kills, honesty heals. And I repeat that cell, that to myself and to others every chance I get. And, and so when it comes time to talk about our relationship with our wives, uh, I believe that we must be fully honest. We must fully disclose. Now, that doesn't mean I get into nitty gritty details. I don't tell her... Um, you know, specifics, but I don't leave out large categories and I don't, um, I don't hide certain things. And what I hear more and more from guys is I would tell her that, but I don't want to hurt her. Right. Well, it's too late. She's already been hurt. And what happens is, you know, this, what, what hurts wives way more than our sexual acting out in marriage is the fact that we lie about it and we don't come clean with it. Yeah. And so, I think what I would say to a guy is get someone to help you be fully prepared, do it in a neutral place, do it with someone helping you, but be fully honest because if you're not that secret, no matter how small it is, that, 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 that secret will 
absolutely inhibit your ability to in, intimately and relationally connect with your wife, mm-hmm. with yourself, and with God. Well, Troy, we're, we're almost out of time for this episode, but I'd love to in, invite you back uh, next time because I really feel like I'd love for us to unpack a little bit more of what that process of restoration looks like. Because, um, man, there's so many facets to that, not only for the individual but also in relationships, because there's 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 just different dynamics there in terms of what an individual needs to go through in terms of personal healing yeah. and then what needs to happen in relational healing. So would you Absolutely. be willing to come back and Absolutely. Now before we talk. Yeah, before we uh end here, let our listeners know how they can get in contact with your ministry. Absolutely. Uh the best way to get in contact with us is on the internet hopequest.us or walkingfree.us. Those two places will get you to the heart of our ministry. Uh, and the biggest things that we do, Jonathan, we, we realized early on that the treatment that we went through uh, was a unique experience that was afforded actually only to missionaries. We were at a crisis counseling center in California that was just for missionaries. Well, we wanted to create a treatment center, a residential intensive inpatient treatment center that was completely Christ-centered, that was biblically based, but you didn't have to sacrifice the clinical things that are important uh, for the healing process. And to put those two together, Christ-centered, but clinically effective. So at HopeQuest, we've created the TREK program, and the TREK program is a 90-day residential intensive inpatient program for addictions and life-dominating issues. And about 50% of our uh, guys that go through the program are dealing with sex addiction as their primary struggle. Mm-hmm. Well, great. Thanks for being with us, Troy, and uh, we look forward to having you back here next time. Awesome. Look forward to it, Jonathan. And of course, listeners, we're always grateful to have you here. And uh, please reach out to us on uh, Twitter at Pure Sex Radio, uh, or you can contact us at mypoint at puresexradio.com. We'll see you next time. Pure Sex Radio is paid for by Be Broken Ministries. Visit us online at puresexradio.com.